what you've kind of moseyed into is the uh, Tennessee Homegrown sponsored podcast, Full Contact Cannabis. And I'm Harold Jarbo, aka The Old Hemp Farmer, with Mark Stepp of Uppercut Media and Gene Lotus of UPI, a whole bunch of other things. The first time you called me, Gene, was because you're a stringer for UPI, right? That's correct. Yeah. And I, uh, I had the cannabis and hemp beat. Actually, I had the drugs, legal and illegal. And then I asked for the hemp beat because I really believe that cannabis and hemp is the story of the century. Fascinating backstory, fascinating challenges that people are having, fascinating to introduce a brand new crop into the United States. Uh, fascinating paranoid backstory about, you know, the 1937 Marijuana Taxation Act. So yeah, so I called Harold based on somebody gave me a recommendation to call you. And that was based on sort of what's happening in 2019. Uh, as we know, all of the CBD growers in 2019 had a sort of nasty awakening. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> So I called you because I was doing sort of a roundup of, you know, what's what's happening on the ground there with farmers. So how long have you been reporting on cannabis? Basically, I went from being a sort of hyperlocal reporter in Colorado to working for UPI, which was basically my beat was the entire Western United States. So I got to jump in anywhere. And because Colorado had such a big hemp industry and cannabis industry, I jumped in there. But I did a bunch of stories back when I was, you know, a Colorado local reporter about cannabis because cannabis is a big deal here, especially just for taxation purposes and, uh, you know, revenue, that kind of stuff. About what year so, was that? About 2017. All right. So you've been in the sector now for four years. Yeah. But I wasn't really reporting about hemp at all until 2019. Kind of to go into that, there was in 2017 probably two distinct worlds. But For right sure. now, the blur between hemp, high THC, marijuana, that's why I refer to it as cannabis. Because right. it's, you know, sure. thing. and then, uh, so you were doing all this and um, twofold thing. Do you think you could have gotten in a more exciting period of time for cannabis than the period of time you got in? <laughs> I doubt it. Uh, well, maybe 2014, you know, when Colorado legalized uh, marijuana. Um, that would have been kind of exciting. But, you know, and, and I was also reporting in Illinois. And obviously they were on the way they did. They legalized medical marijuana. And then there was the whole basically issuing of licenses, which typically, typically in Illinois, the uh, them that has gets. And so there was a lot of sort of corruption around, <laughs> around who got the licenses and why. So that was, that was really fascinating to me. But then, you know, of course, Illinois, I guess in 2020 legalized recreational use marijuana. So, and a lot of people in Illinois started to get interested in growing hemp as well. I've been in the hemp sector and Tennessee homegrown has been doing this since 2016. 
and wow. basically hemp at that world in that time was to, uh even if you were trying to grow for cannabinoids we were using fiber hemp's for a source for our CBD. And, and it really did start out as this industrial hemp thing. And now it really is kind of going into two worlds. At what point did you start getting infatuated with hemp at true industrial hemp, where it's used for oil? Building, building materials. Yes. Yeah, and, and you forgot to mention Harold, which is fine, but I have <laughs> I, I publish a, a trade publication for hemp builders, and it's called hempbuildmag.com. You didn't you didn't forget to mention that? No, you, you all, no, you all, at the end of the show, everybody gets this. That's sort of like the end of a, a talk show. Everybody yeah. gets to promote their products or new. Oh, okay. Projects. Well, anyway, no, okay. But, so, but, but so go in, no, me, no, but I'll go into that right now. Okay, so how yeah. long? Which came first? Well, okay, so covering hemp as a commodity crop and the interest in it, when I was writing for UPI, every time I wrote a story about hemp, it was like, oh, we got 10,000 views on that one. And UPI, you know, it it really goes all over the place as far as how many page views they get. So I knew there was audience interest. And then as I started to interview people about industrial hemp, just the growing of it and the return of it after 80 years of prohibition, I realized, wow, you know, there are just so many uses for it. And I, you know, I got turned on to the Jack Herrer book, which I, I haven't read the entire thing, but luckily it's now mostly online. So you can, you can read it. But And, that, but and that's the emperor has no clothes. The emperor has no clothes. Yeah. And, uh, Actually, in 2017, when I started writing about hemp, I think you could only get it on Amazon for several hundred dollars. But Dan Herrer, his son, has basically made it available as a PDF. So he wants to get the word out. And uh, so it is now available as a PDF. But very inspiring, extremely ex inspiring book. And uh, the idea of carbohydrates versus hydrocarbons and anything oil could do hemp could do better i love that whole idea and for me for some reason the building materials just really stood out as a fascinating side trip so that's what i've been focusing on and really enjoying it Didn't how about you, you have you ever tried to build anything with hempcrete or messed around with, with it at well, all? all right first of all i need if you want to get your serotonin pumped up uh we did a uh free the plant event in chattanooga tennessee on Saturday, and there were oh. some people sporting some t-shirts about hemp builders. And I said, wow, I'm getting ready to interview Gene Lotus. You were a known entity. <laughs> yes. Well, there aren't that many of us, even though I think it's going to be huge. So yeah, I'm actually wearing a U.S. Hemp Building Association t-shirt that, right now. That's what that was the shirt that was down. Now, back to uh, Tennessee Homegrown, or me yes. and hemp. The first year we grew, we were trying to dual purpose and we were going to do seed uh, seed oil. We were growing finola and then we were going to try to harvest the uh, her, uh, the uh, bracts for cannabinoids. Trying to grow Canadian hemp in Middle Tennessee was not a good idea. Right. So the next year we thought, OK, because then we just drilled down because, OK, what, what did work in Tennessee? 
what was grown 140 years ago when Tennessee was actually a cash crop in Tennessee was all fiber. No one was trying to grow seed oil in Tennessee. So then we we got a hold of some, uh, I don't know if you, uh, echo fiber? Eco fiber. Eco fiber, yeah. You did right. For, all right. We did a test with them. And they're grew, in Kentucky, is that right? Louis, yeah, Louis they're now? in Kentucky out of Australia. By, yeah, out of Australia by way of Kentucky. By way of Kentucky, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we grew it, right? But the thing about it was, is uh, we grew uh, about 50, 60 acres. And it was beautiful, big, wow. beautiful hemp. But then there came the combine we had, which was a 7120 case, International Harvester. We caught that sucker on fire three times. Because well, the, the yeah. feeder feeder mechanism wasn't right, and then on down the per, people who said there were some people said they were going to come in and do decortification. When the, once they saw there wasn't enough anchorage, they said, "Ant," eh. so they pulled the plug on the decortification plant. And so then the farmer said, "Well, uh, we're unless there's some place for me to do this, we're not going to do it." Long story short, about sixty acres of of or not no because what didn't get catch on fire in the combine got bush hog i mean and it was it was a loss and so that that's the one thing as a farmer who goes out and puts out the money first is it right. the processor no or is it or is it the far, farmer who and then because the one people i told them said unless there's really a ten thousand acres devoted to fiber it's not a market. Right. Well, I can tell you that Sunstrand, the company that was likely the company you were talking to for decortation. No, no it wasn't. No, it wasn't Sunstrand. No, no. Okay. These, these people went away. Mm. <laughs> well, I can tell you that something similar happened with uh, flax in South Carolina, North Carolina, along the Southeast. Um, some people that started out with hemp and then decided to go into flax decortification to try to, uh, you know, get the prime the pump to be ready when hemp decortification happened. Uh, they found, you know, there were all these farmers that the exact same kind of fiber articles were being written in the newspaper. If you look back, <laughs> that it was, you know, this is a new crop. This is brand new. There's so many uses. Oh, flaxseed oil. Everybody loves it. And flax, you know, the you make linen out of the fiber and blah, blah, blah. Very similar, but it's a bitch of a plant to uh, harvest. And, you know, it, it's really strong, just like hemp. And cutting it down is not easy. No, <laughs> so it's hard. Same kind of thing happened. So I'm so sorry to hear about 60 acres. So what what happened to it? You basically plowed it under, or what'd you well, do? Yeah, that we had to because one thing, it got seeded, and right. then, so we then we had to worry because we you still have to have a license, and so we knew that if we didn't you know bush hog it, burn it that the next year there was going to be seeds everywhere. And then we had 60 acres. We couldn't plant soybeans or corn because there would be all this hemp came up. All well, right. let's flash forward. We tried to do all those things. We still had lost acreage of soybeans because hemp seeds are remarkably resilient little critters. <laughs> That's why we had so much ditch weed when I was yes. growing 
So it, you know, not only did there was a loss the first year, there was a loss the second year because that land ended up not being able to produce. So and I bet your neighbors who were growing black market cannabis really didn't appreciate the seeds and the pollen. This area here was pretty ag, pretty flat. So I don't know how much clandestine. Now, if this had been East Tennessee, eh. But now that you mentioned the South, yeah, for sure. Now that you mentioned it, though, the first time I was out there and they released pollen, and it was out there and the wind hit it, it was the first time I'd ever seen that big of a yellow cloud. Oh gosh, I have never seen hemp pollen in the flesh. Oh my God, it was, and it just came in. It it was just, and, and it would just cover everything. But Back to it, so the, which, you know, the hemp thing came out and was practically going to die here in Tennessee because they did. People bought uh, seed presses. They, you know, did all these things, but it just never really coalesced enough to have enough farmers to be able to support the infrastructure. Then CBD struck. Right. And then all of a sudden, now, instead of having a row crop, what I call row croppers, which were traditional farmers who were transitioning to hemp, now you had people who had been growing weed in their basement who decided now they were going to grow hemp for cannabis. Right, they got all the skills. And, yes. And the horticulture, yeah, beautiful. Well, but th- they didn't. And see, that's the thing about it. They had skills to be able to grow 40 plants in their basement. But when it came to grow 4,000 plants, they did not have the logistical skills to pull it off. Whether it came to weeds, underestimating how much area they had to have to dry, how much labor they had had today, because if you want to plant it, you know, versus uh, you can't use a combine when you're trying to sell for flour. So, so they had, and so all these problems happened, but some of them got in there and got there by the year 2019, of course, which is the year we, me and your paths crossed, uh, 4,000 people had a license to grow hemp in the state of Tennessee. I remember Tennessee was one of the biggest. It was as far as licensed, mountain licensed people. It was the biggest acreage, Colorado, I think Montana and stuff beat it. But so now we've come full circle. People who got into hemp because of fiber and seed now see that, okay, if I want to stay into hemp, I'm probably going to have to shift now to either fiber or oil. Because if the the calculations and what I saw was correct, all of the cannabinoid market for United States, CBD, D8, could be done with 20,000 acres. That I believe that. I, I also, I have a, an open assignment that I'm writing for a cannabis-related newspaper all weekly out of uh, Baltimore. Basically, in states where cannabis has become legal, like Virginia, adult use, the interest in CBD is kind of... <laughs> is dropping right so even places that want to do d8 and and cbd i mean if you could if you could just buy very mild low thc cannabis at a dispensary uh why would you why would you be interested in cbd it's already the cbd is already in there right all right we've been selling now d8 about a year and a half now okay 
And our market was strictly at the first at Tennessee Homegrown was strictly medicinal CBD. It wasn't REC, what I call REC CBD or whatever they oh, want to call that. But <laughs> as soon, you know, because we never saw anybody want to smoke hemp flower. I right. mean, that I've was never understood that either. But all right. But there is a group of people who do. This all was developing and then D8 hit kind of blindsided us. We only knew it as a minor cannabinoid. The only reason we knew it is because we're nerds and we love looking at certificates of analysis. I right. Mean, <laughs> so when it hit, it was just like, whoa, this thing. So we bit the bullet, uh, did the research, develop our protocols or whatever, and started making it. The biggest surprise to us was when we started selling D8 into recreational states. We found a group of people, and this is mostly on the edibles, that prefer the buzz off of a D8 edible to a D9 edible for the simple fact that if they act, accidentally indulge too much on the D8, they're not sitting on their couch going, oh, this is not fun. This is not fun. I'm gonna, you're right. Yeah. No, not going to the ER. But yeah. the problem is, Harold, and this is nothing to do with you because I know you are but i there is a a real rogue element in the d8 market and do you think <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the problem is you know when i was working for upi i was covering the evali crisis and that was all basically tainted thc vapes there was mm -hmm. one kid a high school kid in Wisconsin, who had 300,000 of them. He just bought all this petroleum, vitamin E acetate, and he was yep. filling up vape carts and packaging them with pictures of Captain Crunch. Thousands of people went to the emergency room. Hundreds of people died, or I, I think maybe 70 people died. People had double lung transplants. I mean, you know, it's a bathtub gin issue. And that is what I would no, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You get pushback on that. No, it's not. Okay. What the issue is, it's not being supervised. Yes, if, well, now, correct. Because I guarantee you, you make D8 illegal, you made a, a black market drug that there's a market for. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Because yeah, I, right. I'll be the, the first one to tell. The prohibition line, riding the prohibition line is the, the issue. But the um, issue is so, so what you said, because I live in a state where you, I don't have to have a license to process uh, isolate into D8. There right. is no supervision. We have wondered why there hasn't been more people blown up in Tennessee. <laughs> well, is, didn't they just <laughs> pass some legislation in Tennessee that protected D8? No. The state no. house? No, what they passed here a couple months ago was they incrementally raised the amount of D9 you could have from 0.3 to 0.9. Oh. That awesome. was that was the big thing after them finagling in the state and the Senate of in Nashville about a medical bill. That was their Solomon-like compromise is to okay. raise 0.6 up. But all the other stuff, they did what politicians do when they don't know exactly which way the wind's blowing, they punted. Okay. They kicked the but can I, down I the road. I was talking to the Kentucky. Oh, no. They made D8 illegal. Mm. Right, exactly. And they are, you know, they are looking at Tennessee and saying, oh, 
how can we, you know, some of them are actually opening markets just over the border yes. and selling it to themselves and then selling it back. And yeah, it's, it's nuts. I can have people who grow flour indoor in Kentucky and send exactly what you said, send it down here. I can package it and then send it back to them, or I can drop ship it to, to stores for them. Now, see, a lot of people would say, oh, this is this is opportunity when states all have different oh, rules. This is opportunity for capitalism. And and that's true. Um, but I do think also it's it's frustrating. I mean, clearly, you know, the federal government has fallen down on the job and the and the DEA just released a document in um, it's called the Orange Book in April that specifically says D8 is is illegal, um, calls it a synthetic cannabinoid. You know, who's going to enforce that and how is that going <laughs> to? It's fascinating. It's journalist, it sure is fascinating. The thing uh, uh, that gets me, though, is, is, is this good cop, bad cop when it comes to cannabinoids. And the hemp industry has been the most guilty because they knew better. And you that was D eight or in no general? no I'm talking in general. The one of the things that because I came from recreational cannabis into right. uh, CBD cannabinoids, and the first thing I realized when I grew my first hemp crop was, oh my God, this is weed. Okay, right. and then to see people stand up in front of other people and try to tell them, well, this is. Uh, this is not uh, weed. No, this uh, is a no, folks. No, not this. And they knew, they knew that the point three was not based on science. It wasn't based upon cultivars. It was an arbitrary line in the sand. And they all grabbed it with open arms and threw THC under the bus to try to get their things. And the thing got me was in the first part of the industry, they weren't pushing u.s hemp they were trying to sell canadian hemp oh yeah well i did interview people who said you know like you they ended up buying canadian seeds and uh were very disappointed no because... i'm talking about the industry the first part of the hemp industry was dr bronner nutiva right. manitos okay. they were pushing Manitoba. canadian yes they were and at that time, I'm sorry, I'll name names. HIA right. was one of the <laughs> biggest friggin' culprits who was throwing THC and saying, this is a different plant. Not so much to, to get to where American farmers could grow it. It's so they could start selling the products. Right. I mean, you look, follow the money. Who is the earlier donors to the HIA? I don't know. Maybe Dr. Bronner's. But you know what? Don't you want those products? I mean, I no, no. But what I'm saying is, it's is it. What are we? The whole point is, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to develop a U.S. agricultural thing based upon hemp? Or are we trying to do a hemp industry? Because it, like you, you're trying to get in hemp building. If you can't get the farmers to embrace this, it will never happen. That's true. Right now, as you might know they people who want to build with hemp a lot of times just end up importing hemp from France. And and that's what I'm saying. Which is, is about as unecologically <laughs> sound as, as you can make it, right? Right. 
<laughs> but but that's what I'm saying is so. But right now, if you look at and I will, I'll stop picking on the HIA. I'll I'll go around those stuff. How many people in these organizations are trying to work with the farmer to be able to develop to where, like you said, the processors can come in here and got a chance to have a big enough crop that they might be able to break even? Well, I do think that a lot of states, you know, the the, the local departments of ag, I, I don't know about Tennessee, and I know that Kentucky, you know, I think they've the Kentucky Hemp Association actually sued the Ag Department, even while still inviting Ryan Quarles to come to their party on August the 5th. So we'll see how that happens. Uh, I think a lot of- Where is is that party? It's in Louisville. It's a- It's their- Yeah, it's their yearly um, sort of shindig. They're gonna have a pre, a pro D8 concert in the evening, but but during the day, (laughs) It's a, uh, boy, I should know exactly what they're calling it. It's their, it's their yearly convention kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, but that's what, but there, see, that's what the whole point is. And that's where we're at in all of this. What is hemp? Well, right. It's all one phenotype. No, but I mean, no, if moving genotype. forward, because one of the things I have noticed in the rec states is that gently, but forcefully, <laughs> is that's contradiction, they're forcing all the cannabinoids into the same program. Corral. Yes. It's just like in a couple of states, if you want to do D8, you can do D8, but you can't do it under hemp. You're going to Michigan. have to do it. Right, exactly. And you're going to have to do it under the auspices of the, the medical or recreational Right. And I think that it, I mean, the idea is if it's intoxicating, I think that is the line. If it's mildly intoxicating, like D8, I mean, I, let's just say D8 is a, an intoxicating cannabinoid. So CBD, uh, you bombed, I'm serious. We got dab bars here in Tennessee, right? You (laughs) dabbed. CBD dab bar? Yes. If you do high enough concentrations of CBD, believe me, you will get faced. And see, that's well, the whole thing about it is. And that's what I'm saying is we have to, to kind of, to me, this is my opinion, Gene, mm-hmm. is, is that right now we should really think about the, if it's made for a drug, it's made for CBD, it's not hemp. If you're oh, growing it for seed oil. I see what or you're saying. So it, what you would say is that industrial skinny stalks, 14 feet high is hemp and everything else is cannabinoids. Well, no, if you grow it to produce, if you grow it specifically to make drugs out, then it's no longer hemp. Well, I think you're going to have a hard time getting, I mean, I think philosophically you're absolutely correct, but you're going to have a hard time untangling all of the legislation. And if you, if you shoot into the future in a, in a, in an ideal world, Yes, but every single state and the feds and the USDA, I mean, they have they've spent so much time with this fiction of the point three that they just are going to, you know, it, it would take a generation. No, I disagree. Untangle that, I uh-uh. think. You know what's going to untangle this? And it's untangling it right now, real quick, real time, D8. Oh, interesting. <laughs> oh, seriously? Because that was... They would have kicked the can down the road infinitely if D8 wouldn't have come along. 
And then when D8 came along, he said, oh, well, oh my God, we can get THC out of this hemp plant. And then it said, well, yeah, it was always there. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that's but, not but, so but that okay. Would... But what I'm saying is Washington state right now is unraveling it. Oregon's unraveling it. Michigan's <laughs> unraveling it. Colorado's unraveling it. California's unraveling. And you know why it's going to be unraveled? Twofold thing. One, if I'm paying all these costs for compliancy to grow high THC, and I got some guy down the road who can crank out D8, take part of my market, and he ain't paying no compliancy costs, I got a problem, especially since I contributed to your campaign. The second thing is when you get down into it, it's just not that uh, tenable to be able to do because of taxation. Why should I do excise tax on one rate and then I don't have to, my state's going to just lose that. You know how much we think of D8 sold in Davidson County, which is Nashville a month? How much? 500,000. Wow. All so right. all this tax revenue is disappearing. Potential tax revenue is disappearing. You doggone right. And when it comes to, to politicians, there's only two things that register with them. <laughs> Votes and, and money. Yeah. <laughs> and right well, now. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, if they, so like in Illinois, that you don't think that, that as more DA comes in there, they're not that they're not going to want to push that into their med or med rec. Uh, well, they are definitely, I, I have seen, they definitely passed a law outlawing D8. So they're going the prohibition route because a lot of politicians are making political hay, stomping the table and saying, kids could get this. You know, we don't know what's in it. They could have bleach in it. You know, they're saying things like that in Illinois. So they're using it as a law and order kind of. So, uh, and the online sales that are going in there, they're just going to turn their back on? Well, uh, I think, uh, I, I don't know. Political, uh, how different states do their political. I mean, I, obviously, some politicians are addicted to the prohibition mindset and and how it makes people uh feel you know that the reefer madness mindset um i think other prohibitions are dedicated to hey let's tax it everybody's using it anyway you know they seem realistic and and uh somewhat you know i think that's another argument that makes sense with the voters not sure not sure what's going to happen in Illinois, but uh, it sure is interesting, isn't it? I mean, well, the thing also thing that happens to do is this has happened and it always does happen. Something comes along and, and it is. And D8 is one of the phenomena where the actual consumers were way out ahead of all the people who sold it and made it. They was CBD. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the thing about it. So the politicians got here and all of a sudden get, something gets dr dropped on their laps and they like, oh, they have to do something. But you and I both know that once somebody can say, we think there's X millions of dollars worth of online sales of D8 that are going into Illinois, then someone will say, well, you know, we should probably investigate this and see if we can regulate it. Did you go to NOCO this year? I did. There was psilocybin boost there. 
I know. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. They were psilocybin is is decriminalized in Denver. No, but that's what I'm saying is here are all these things that are come along the sea change of what consumers want, what people like. And once again, it's politicians now that are having to kind of catch up with, oh, you mean like people trip medically? Yes, <laughs> they trip right. medically. Oh, you know, so that's, you know, that's what I'm saying is all this is going on. And, and I think my timetable on this to get three years. Now, that doesn't mean in three years that there won't be a bunch of states that still don't have recreational, may not have medical, but how the industry looks at it as a whole, I think they'll have to sort out. And economics is the thing that will force the sorting out of it. Well, you know, Because you and I both know, once you get billions involved, and that's what we're talking about with DA, billions. Yeah. But I just got, I just wrote a story about a, a a study where they just went to all these stores and gas stations in Florida and bought random D8 products. Yeah, because they bought it in a gas station. (laughs) Yeah, it was just like complete, you know, it was just- Can I ask you a question? If you went through all the products, food, everything, vapes, all in a gas station, what do we think the the lab reports would look like when we (laughs) brought them back? Yeah, terrible. But but the question is, you know, um, we're supposed to have safe, you know, products. I, I just worry about. about and you should. Uh, and that's what I'm saying is. But adulteration, basically, having the, having reported for a year. on. I know, on but that, can you separate the, right. the compound from the way it's treated? Sure. But the same thing happened with, you know, I mean, and I also think there's a mindset. If I'm a teenager and I am going to buy D8, I am not going to go online and look at the COAs, right? I'm going to say, ooh, I could get high. And this is cool. And there is a mindset when you are buying a quasi, when you're buying booze, when you're buying anything quasi uh, intoxicating, right? There's a different kind of mindset when you're acquiring this item than when you are acquiring something like CBD, which is for kindergarten teachers or whatever, you know, that are, it's, it's a little bit less, maybe it's a social thing, maybe it's psychological, but there is a, you know, screw it. I'll just, I'll just take this, you know, cause I'm going to get high, uh, which is a, which is a fine thing. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is though, but okay. Hasn't that always been? Oh, sure. Okay, and the solution is? And the solution is to make sure that people are making it. Like, we don't want, we don't want weird bathtub gin. I interviewed this guy who had been in Czechoslovakia. He was in Prague in the 90s, I guess. And they had a run of bathtub gin type alcohol that people were going blind. Yeah, I know. know? But what I'm saying is, though, that, but once again, though, what you're saying is prohibition. Right. But it wasn't that, really prohibition. It was in, no, no, but it was in Prague where it was not. No, but, what but I, why can't we? One of the things that always gets me is if we're really worried about harm reduction, why don't we start providing more safe euphorians? Yes, exactly. Absolutely. 
free two beer, bring it back. And then in, isn't there a little bit of a nanny state decide, well, this is a good cannabinoid, but that's right. a bad cannabinoid. All right. And how funny that the milder one is, is taking on this, you know, well, demonic. Well, but, uh, well, because it's the thing about it is, this is one of those things where it's the powers that be have, have just stepped back and said, we're just not going to deal with it because we don't know. And they're stuck between this rock and a hard place because on one minute, you're going to say, oh, we don't approve any of these as drugs. We're, you know, I mean, the whole point that recreational cannabis in the United States is still rogue. Right. Also, the concept, like if you get high on something, well, that makes it bad. Right. But on the other hand, how do you feel about spraying D8 on hemp flower? Oh, it's God awful. It's disgusting. <laughs> right. Well, that is, you know, that's something well, we would that... never. I mean, we make D8. We do. We've got topicals, cartridges, uh, edibles, the whole bit. But once again, though, this is your own personal standards. And personally, I, I wouldn't do it. Personally, I do not understand how come in the state of Tennessee, anybody who takes cannabinoids and makes it into a, pro a product doesn't get inspected. That makes no sense. <laughs> it absolutely does. Awesome. Doesn't. And, but, but, but that's what I'm saying is, but that is when you have the, the, the government, I see no evil. Right. Well, I'll tell you that Colorado, I mean, we're we're kind of a good government state and kind of uptight and nerdy like our governor, but who won because of the ca cannabis vote in many respects. He won the Democratic primary. But, um, you know, part of it is when they built the whole uh, adult use regulatory apparatus, they basically devoted half of the tax money to to basically paying people's salaries to actually uh, regulate. So the whole thing is a, it's almost like just a, a liberty thing because it's not really a revenue generator since they spend so much money actually just complying, making compliance necessary. So what it sounds like is that you're, that Tennessee voted to legalize hemp, but then like didn't vote for the, you know, basically didn't, put in a regulatory apparatus. Well, it costs money. Right, exactly. But they could have spent their tax money on that, right? Well, but see, well, no, but hold it. See, think about it. There's no, only, the only thing does income in Tennessee is sales tax. There's no state income tax. Oh, there and we go. And this is one of these places. You want to not, you want to get uh, voted out of office, mention the word, I'm going to raise taxes. All right. Okay. So basically, not even I'm going to tax cannabis. I, I, whoa, 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 whoa. You said that word. Yeah. You said cannabis. You can't say cannabis. It's hemp in Tennessee. Okay. See, and that's the whole kabuki theater. <laughs> and the fact that somebody's making D8 out of it. Well, uh, seriously. When I first walked into the Department of Agriculture, I said, can I grow hemp to make cannabinoids? The man said, I don't care what you do, son. Just don't go over 0.3 Delta 9. That was basically the meeting. It was like Sergeant Schultz. I don't want to know. You know, just go in there, do your thing. Don't cause us no problems. 
How familiar you are since you're a, a reporter? Because to me, let's flip to Oklahoma. Because to, to me, oh, Oklahoma oh. is the high THC version of Tennessee. Yeah, I I actually am not that familiar. Other than Oklahoma, you know, they they legalized uh, medical marijuana, and they had such a gold rush there. Uh, Still going on. Yeah. People are, it's like it's like the early days. They're loading up their Canastoga wagon, and they're moving to Oklahoma. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right. And you know, with the with the new law that basically upholds the native treaties on tribal land, that could get really interesting too. With you know, Oklahoma is you know more than fifty percent sovereign nation at this point, and. Um, the, <laughs> so bring it on i say right. well we're at the point of this the full contact cannabis podcast where we really do need to go into what you're doing now oh and that's the hip builder magazine that's right and we're having so much fun it is just fantastic um what's interesting to me is that that in europe they've been building with hempcrete for 30 years and they've done all the tests. The United States is kind of like the World Series where baseball, you know, it's called the World Series, even though there's no other country in the world that participates except the United States. Well, we have the International Construction Code, ICC, and they refuse, they will not take any, uh, basically any sort of testing protocol from any other country, even though it's called the International Construction Code. So. Um, it's so interesting to see how hemp building will uh, basically be uh, incorporated into the U.S. and to follow these people who are just like you are, Harold, banging their head against the wall, trying so hard to get um, hemp construction legit. Now, we have our good friends in the straw bale movement. Have you ever seen a straw bale house? Of course. Pictures. Yeah. Never been in one, but I've seen yeah. pictures. They so, can be a very, they can be very, very stylish and expensive too. Exactly, and that that is the point right now that you can build a hempcrete house, but it has to be a bespoke thing where you pay cash. You can't get, you can't finance it. You can't probably can't insure it um, while it's being built. Blah blah blah. But we really think that. It is the future of building. And it's just so exciting to think that you could have a plant, some lime and some water and make, you know, insulation, make an insulation envelope for your house that will last a hundred years. I just love that idea. Maybe it's because I, I don't know. And I love, there's so many women that are excited by it. Um, I find that really interesting. Another thing is that the Department of Energy there in Tennessee at the Oak Ridge Lab is going to do a two-year test on hemp building materials with Tommy Gibbons from Hempitecture, which is one of the earliest and most successful hemp building companies. They, they sell something called hemp wool, which is actually with the fiber, it's an insulation that comes in bats. So you can put it in like a regular fiberglass, but you don't have to wear a hazmat suit. You can just kind of put it in with your bare hands. and um, so he is going, the DOE is going to be studying um, 
hemp building materials for two years and they have all kinds of tests that they do like they can they can make something 40 years old in two months (laughs) (laughs) which is funny because like Gertrude Stein once said only God could make a 15 year old burrow in in 10 minutes when he made the uh when he when he created the world right Right. (laughs) but anyway so the Department of Energy evidently can do that too um I do think that once, you know, once the there are sort of standards of how hemp could be used to sub, to sub out for some of these insulation materials. Insulation, when they make mineral wool, it is it takes up it causes thirty percent of the ozone depletion in a new house build. Um, the EPA found out they have to heat up basalt to like 1,600 degrees uh, Celsius in order to make it into basically a molten stuff that they spin to make these fibers, right? Like cotton candy. Like cotton candy. But um, it really, it releases all these VOCs. It's, It's just really poisonous. And to think that you could just grow it in 90 days in a field and make the same product way 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 more environmentally sound all right right now using um hemp herd the fibers uh as building materials is at a pivotal point uh, and you said that there's all these women and men who want to get into it what's your suggestion for those people who are wanting to push this forward well what's interesting is a lot of people i i think a lot of young people are getting into it because it's a it's exciting. You know, a lot of people maybe are not going to college now because they are not getting a, a they don't want to take out, you know, $90,000 worth of loans. They're thinking about, well, what can, what can I do that's kind of with my hands? You know, what's exciting to me? And building with hemp is one of those exciting things that captures a lot of younger people. We have a, a clubhouse we do every Thursday, and there's a guy in Kansas, um, in Fort Dodge. He and his partner have a stucco business, and they were like, hey, let's get into hempcrete. So what they did was they went to Hempitecture, which is in, based in Ketchum, Idaho. They they have some contractor training things. They've, I think they've trained maybe 160 contractors. <laughs> So that's one thing that people could do. And that's what we're noticing. People in their 20s and 30s um, are saying, how can I get into this business? Then, of course, it's really hard to get the materials. And we Well, first of all, though, what I'd like to ask is, okay, what would be their first step? Well, the question is, do you want to build with it or do you want to? Well, you don't, I mean, if you don't know anything about it, can you make that decision? I mean, seriously, it's. I I see what you're saying. I'm here. I'm here. I'm listening. Damn, this sounds cool. It is cool. Uh, I know. Um, So, but okay, I'm in a place that there's no hemp, there's no hempcrete, nothing. How do I get a hold of you and you guys to start trying to go down this road? Well, first of all, that's why I saw the opportunity in starting an online magazine so that people could just read about it. Because my theory is that some kind of cannabis, some kind of influencer is going to announce that they are. Willie Nelson or Snoop Dogg is going to announce they're building their whole new house out of hemp, right? And then, and and architecture magazines are starting to take note of hempcrete also. Also in France, they just made a law 
a couple years ago that said that any government building has to be X amount of renewable materials. And so they just built this gigantic social housing building out of hempcrete in the middle of Paris. And the architecture magazines are all writing about that. Architects are bored with what they are currently working with. And the idea that you could have this amazing insulation material that basically you know, uh, keeps your house cool, will cut your energy bills in half, uh, will last for a hundred years, is made out of hemp. It's, it's got so much sexy coolness to it. Plus the fact that a lot of young people are very anxious about housing, mm -hmm. right? They think I'll never, never, never be able to buy a house. Now here in Denver, the average, the, the median house price is bordering $600,000. I mean, cheap, how could people... cheap in Nashville. It's that would be cheap in Nashville. All right. Exactly. Well, that's <laughs> the thing. I mean, house prices are just going up. I'm actually working with the city of Greeley. We are doing a competition called the $100,000 hemp house. So they do some entrepreneurial contests with the uh, Monmouth School of Business at University of Northern uh, Colorado. And so we are basically setting up a competition to uh, say, hey, you could build a hemp house for $100,000. We'll give you the land, um, build it. And so we're trying to build, you know, do it over three years, build three homes that have been built once the land and the utilities are there. Okay. So, but build the actual dwelling for $100,000 because we really, you know, everyone says, oh, construction, construction, it's so expensive, but it's not construction. It's something else. It's zoning, probably. That so is causing. You still haven't given me that entry point. The entry point is read about it. It has no, no, but, okay, no, but hold it. So yeah. what I'm saying is, your magazine. All right, right. Do you guys have a blog? Yeah, the whole thing is. It really uh, is a blog, and so, we also publish a lot of stuff by real builders who have been doing it for thirty years in in Great Britain. Those people could tell you anything. We had a guy from Ireland on uh, on Thursday. He was like, "Well, why isn't it? Why is it that you can't get hemp in America? Why? Why do you have to import it from France?" And the truth is that we just don't have we don't have the standards here to basically make the hemp the exact right spec to work very well in building. If it's too dusty, guess what happens? It basically the dust reacts with the lime and the wall falls down and that has happened to a lot of british builders they know all about that <laughs> so so the point is we need an american spec of industrial hemp shiv or herd that is clean and works for building so all these opportunities to create that to grow that to create the lime that goes with it and then all the other products like hemp wood you probably know about that in murray kentucky uh, making a floorboard and other they uh, take take the hemp herd and press it like they do the plywood like well it's not really plywood it's more like hardwood it's more like bamboo flooring you know it's it's uh but they it's it's a of, resin yeah it's yes. a soy resin and the stalks but they don't have to cut it up they do not have to separate the herd from the bast they just uh they just smash it all together and it's and it's there and it's beautiful i mean uh, you can just make anything out of guitar cabinets, uh, furniture, anything you'd use a hardwood for. And then there's um, Canaboard, 
uh, we're just about to publish a, a story on Canaboard. That's uh, Lo, uh, Lawrence Serban out of California, real hemp innovator. He started in college importing hemp objects um, from places where it was not prohibited, t-shirts and then everything. Um, hemp Traders is the company. So they do a sort of particle board out of hemp. The Chinese are now doing a particle board out of hemp. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, think of, of all the trees. The, you kind of figured that they're the leaders in industrial hemp, the Chinese are. They're That's correct. More... And I did talk to Guy uh, Carpenter from hemp, from Bear Fiber. They made hemp socks this year out of American hemp. Yay. Of, or last year. They were like the only garment in the United States, they say, made out of American hemp, these hemp socks. But he said, basically, the Chinese want the Americans to succeed with hemp textiles because they want to sell know, us a lot of hemp fiber. Well, not just that. If we even are growing it ourselves here, I mean, the influence of American culture is so strong that if people are saying, like, I'm buying a okay. hemp shirt and I'm going to wear it for 20 years. OK, real quick question. How much hemp clothing do you have? Well, I'm wearing some right now. And uh, I have, a, I have, I ordered about nine pairs of hemp socks two years ago from, uh, on eBay from Romania, where there is another place where they've done hemp textiles. Okay. Um, two years and not a single one has a single hole. Plus they- Testimonial they, there, friends. Yes. All right. We're going to wrap this up because believe it or not, we've been talking over now. I know. Okay. It's great to so, you here. Well, can I just tell you something about old hemp farmers versus young hemp farmers? Yes. Here in Colorado, the average age of a farmer is 74. Oh, and they are really, there's a succession problem, right? Because yeah. they don't like their kids do not want the farm. They don't want to deal with it. They want to go to college. They want to work in the city, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess who comes along? The hemp farmers, they're in their 30s. They have little kids. Yeah. Can you imagine a farmer with, you know, kids in elementary school riding? Yes, it's labor. Yes, it's labor. <laughs> labor. But, but all I'm saying is it's resulted in a marvelous uh, yeah, it has. influx of people interested in farming. And some of them, and you're the one who told me this, some of them say, hey, I'm going to try organic vegetables. Other ones, you know, are just, how yeah, can we, I get rich? We've got but, our biggest vegetable crop this year. All right, we're going to wind this also up by uh, right now you're going around working for the Southern Hemp Expo. That's correct. Okay, real cool for Cecily, my bud. We need right? to do a shout out there. Also, is Hemp Builder uh, going to have a, a booth at Southern Hemp Expo? Well, we're sponsoring a film. Have you seen the film Bringing It Home? It was made by Linda Royal. And I think I actually have seen parts of this. 2013. So yeah. before the 2014 farm bill, they basically made a movie about the house in North Carolina that was built of hemp. And then the whole British, you know, uh, industry that had been building for hemp, with hemp for 15 years at that point. So they, they were way ahead of their time. And uh, they're going to be screening it. Uh, Linda Royal, one of the, co-filmmakers she lives in North Carolina so she's gonna have a free screening it's been updated since you know the, the farm bill and stuff but it's so inspiring to see and you can watch it for free on Vimeo or will you be at the Southern Hemp Expo 
I'll be at the Southern Hemp Expo. Yeah. Okay. Trying to meet up with all those hemp builders who are going to be there. A lot of people are going and to be how, Yeah. And how do people get a hold of you? Oh, you can email me at uh, Jean Lotus at hempbuildmag.com or Twitter, Instagram. You can message me. I'm glad to hear from you. We're, we're so excited about this. You know, the rally event is September 2nd through 4th, the Southern Hemp Expo. Is, it's got an $11 ticket for the, sell, the Experience Hemp trade show portion on the, on the 4th. And uh, really so much there. The entire hemp supply chain is going to be there. So if you're in Raleigh, Raleigh, I should say. <laughs> it's a rally up. in Raleigh. Yes, there's a rally in Raleigh. You still have a bunch more to say. You are going to have to come back, aren't you? I would love to come back. This is so much fun. And Harold, you are just, you're always the go-to person to interview for any journalist because <laughs> you're quotable, man. <laughs> Bless your heart. <laughs> Don't you agree, Mark? I, I do agree. And, and I had one comment and one, one last question. I think if we build a hemp house for Snoop, I'm not sure how long it's going to last. <laughs> and then um, if, if you wouldn't mind the. It would last for a hundred years. Come on. <laughs> I, I'm curious. What is the number one misconception about hemp building products? Oh, the number one misconception. Hempcrete is not load bearing. It's called hempcrete because it's a, it, is a strong, so basically it turns back into limestone, except it's got all this plant matter in it, right? right. So you can't burn it down. It's fireproof, it's mold proof, it's uh, pest proof. It's like a stone wall. And when the, when the big fires went through in California in 2017, uh, the lime uh, straw bale houses were untouched, right? They turned a little pink, but they did not burn down like their neighbors did. Same thing with hempcrete, un, unburnable, right? But the main thing is it is an insulation envelope. It is not, you can't just like build with it and have it hold up a house. So you have to build it around the, uh, the frame. There are, there are also brick uh, solutions that are more load bearing that incorporate things inside the bricks that will hold it up. So the greatest place, just Google hempcrete on YouTube and you will, your mind will blow up with how exciting it is. Perfect, thank you. All right, I'm gonna wind this up. We thank Gene Lotus of Hemp Build Magazine. Mark Stepp, as always, Uppercut Media. And uh, you've been listening to Harold Jarbo, AKA the Old Hemp Farmer. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Thanks so much. And as always, keep one eye on the weather and the other eye on the market. Thank you. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee Homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Full Contact Cannabis is created by Jarbo, the old hemp farmer. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com.